welcome to the KC City Church Audio Podcast. We pray you enjoy this following sermon. So I want to greet you all this morning, especially those of you who are visiting uh, as well, family. We want to thank you for joining us this morning. And we know during the school holidays, there are you know, often people away. So we thank you for coming as well and, and joining us this morning. There are a couple of things that I would like to read, but you know, my sister sent me this. Uh, my sister sent me this uh, message about two weeks ago, and I thought, hmm. Next time when I preach, I might I might share this because I think it'll it'll help you understand uh, why I may tend to go a little bit longer. A pastor went to the dentist for a set of false teeth. The first Sunday after getting his teeth, he preached for only eight minutes. The second Sunday, he preached only 10 minutes. But the following Sunday, he preached nonstop for nearly three hours until the congregation realized he couldn't quit and finally helped him sit down. Concerned for his health, they asked, are you okay? What happened? And so the pastor explained, well, the first Sunday with my new teeth, my gums were so sore, I couldn't preach longer than eight minutes. The second Sunday, I felt I could go a little longer to 10 minutes. But today, I mistakenly put my wife's teeth in and discovered I couldn't shut up. So, for, 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 following on from what you were saying just now about shut up, I thought I'll read this out here. So, so I'm just sort of forewarning all of you why I'm going to be going fairly long today. <laughs> oh, dear. It's so good. To be in the house of the Lord and to be able to, you know, really worship God and friends, I just I, I, I feel compelled on my in my heart to want to read this before I proceed to the message, just by way of maybe sharing and, and explaining a, a couple of things here as to why sometimes when you come, you find us um, doing things in our service, uh, any changes. Every week, sometimes it may change. We're not a, a predictable church. If, uh, and, and if you've been coming, you'd realize that, hey, these guys are not pr- predictable. I go this week and it's this. I, go next, I come next week and it's something else. And, you know, the Bible is not prescriptive. The Bible doesn't tell us this is how we need to run a church service. Right? It doesn't mandate that this is the only way. You must have two songs. You must... And then you sandwich it with something, and then you do something else, and you do this, and you do that. The word of the Lord says, we come, with, uh, we, we come into, into his courts with praise. We enter his gates with thanksgiving. Amen? Yeah. Hallelujah. So, and, and, and you know the word of the Lord says, who can ascend unto the holy hills except he that has a clean hand and a pure heart? And so, you know, Paul addresses this issue in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, and he says this, dear... Um, 
and he, and he says, he, uh, he says this in verse 20, Dear brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your understanding of these things. Be innocent as babies when it comes to evil, but, but be mature in understanding matters of this kind. It is written, and, he's, and he says this, that I will speak to my own people through strange languages and through lips of foreigners, but even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Right? And, and then he goes on and he addresses this issue with the Corinthian church. Uh, and he tries to bring some semblance there, some understanding, some order as such. Right, uh, and, and when I say order, in a sense, it is, it is like, it is like following a recipe. I never follow a recipe when I'm cooking exactly. I will throw in whatever that I feel at that moment inspired to do, and and use my taste buds to, to actually follow that. And there are many of you who shake are shaking your heads, which probably you do, but there are some who follow recipes exactly. And here, Paul gives us and, and he provides us these ingredients and he says, well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues and another will interpret what it said. We had that happen, not today, but last week we had that. And there are times where we have that happening. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. That's the key word, must strengthen all of you. I don't know about you, but today, man, I felt strengthened. I came really, really, I think quite exhausted. But I feel like, gosh, I feel, I feel life again. I feel, I feel alive again. I feel strengthened. Why? Because through worship. And, and, and how the team had led and, and CJ had led us into that place and listening to, to uh, the, the, the prophetic words that were shared or the encouragement that was shared, listening to uh, Ian encourage and lead the children, it's all added, it's all layer by layer. It's all layer. That in itself is a message what you have trained your child in the way that you should go. And he or she shall never depart from it. So there there are layers. And you know, the, 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 there are several other passages of Scripture that I could share. One in particular that comes to mind is in John chapter 4, verse 28. And it says, it talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth. It always touches on the context of the objective and the subjective, right? So even if, as you're visiting, I, 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 I want to share this in the context that, that objectivity is, of course, the Word of God. Subjectivity is where the Holy Spirit leads. And we are a church that loves to allow the Holy Spirit to lead. We don't necessarily want to put a cap. But I always believe in this uh, wisdom that's been shared to us. And, and I share this with our, with our team as well. We always build banks when the river flows. Because when there are no banks, it floods. But when we build banks of safety. But the banks need to be wide enough to hold and host the river of God that flows. Not your river, not my river, but His river, right? So we come and we wade in His river as we did this morning, you know? And there will be opportunities for us. There was one Sunday where we went on for almost most of the service, and we just had about maybe a 10, 15-minute message. Does that happen every week? No, it doesn't. But we want you to journey with us and understand that we love allowing the Holy Spirit to lead. 
but we're also responsible leaders. And so, so we respond. We respond to his ability. Amen? Not to my ability, not to yours, but to his ability. Do, will we always get it right? I wish I could say that. But we lean on one another. Right? We lean on one another. And, and we allow each one to take on that role because that person carries today. As CJ led, she carries the Spirit of God in her. She has an anointing, right? There's Rachel. Rachel was running there and dancing there. And I'm thinking, where are you going to? And suddenly she's over there. <laughs> and she's worshiping over there. And, you know, it's so good. We don't have a stage mentality where we come here. We lead from here. And you allow us to lead. You allow us to worship for you. That's not what we're here to do. We're not here to worship for you. We're here to worship you. I'm not worship you. We are here to worship with you. Thank you. You see, I told you we don't always get it right. So we're here to worship with you. We're here to facilitate what God lays on our hearts. And we try to inspire. Really try to inspire. Try to throw out word, the, the word of God. You know, and, and, and it's like throwing out, um, you know, salting the oats when, when you lead. Say, you know, when, when horses are led to drink, you can't force the horse to drink, but you can sow, you can excite, you can throw something in there to excite. So we, we throw certain things to excite, hallelujah, to excite the person. And this morning, I, w- I want to throw something to you, and I promise to finish the church of Thyatira today, hallelujah. This is my third attempt to finish it, so uh, we, we're going we're gonna, to we, we're finish this, and I'm going to interview a young adult that, that was with us and then went to Sydney, and then uh, and and she came back, uh, and we're so thankful that that she's back, and she's got a great. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually going to invite Audrey, not who else you think. <laughs> Jess, why don't you come up, Jess? <laughs> Amen, amen. Thank you. So, uh, can you pass her mic, please? Can so if you now for those of you who uh, probably are just hearing this for the first time, we've we've been looking at at the context of grab a seat. We've been looking at the context of uh, of the sacred and secular. We live in a world, but we've got the whole context of sacred and secular. We live our lives in what we call privatized faith. As you see that the church of Thyatira, there are seven churches in, in the book of Revelation. There was only one church that did not receive an indictment from the Lord, right? And I think, I believe that was the church of Philadelphia. But every other church is, there is the sandwich message. Oh, I am so, so proud of what you do, blah, blah, blah. But there is this one thing. But there is this one thing. And so the church of Thyatira had this one thing, and which is, the, which is about the, the, the privatized faith, where you keep your faith private. Oh, I'm a believer, but I just keep it to myself. I don't need to, I use the word, flaunt my belief system to anywhere else. Because, you know, I don't want people to think that I'm this, you know, uh, this, this, woo, this weirdo, you know, going, this spiritual person that is just out there trying to spiritualize everything because we feel, no, that is, that is, you cannot be an over-the-top person. Come on, we're living in this world, you know, and we face that. 
and we are pushed into receiving that. And so we, 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 we care for our children that way too. What do we do? We bring our children up not in the ways of the Lord as we heard today. We don't train them in the ways of the Lord. We train them in the ways of the world. Right? We, tra- we train them in the ways of the world in, in a sense that they are exposed to the wisdom that is, that is out there. So let's look, let's, let's, let's read these, these uh, passages of, of Scripture here. So we have a basis for that, right? And it says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. Right? I know all the things that you do. And he commends them for this. I know. I, I, I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. Four things that he commends them for. Their love their faith, their service, and their patient endurance. So this is not a church that is not, that is not following the Lord as such. They're a church that are committed. They're doing things that any church, any one of us as believers would do. However, he says this, and I can see your constant improvement, improvement in all these things as well. And he says that, right? But look at this next. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, right, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Right, therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly. Unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out of the thoughts of, out of the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Right? But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching which is deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan. That's the truth. Actually, it says that, right? I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end. Right? To them, I will give authority over all nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like like, like clay pots, they will have the same authority I received from my father. And I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying. Hallelujah. Understand what he is saying. And so what I want to what I want to share probably here, firstly, is because we've already gone, gone down this track a couple of times, twice, I'm not going to give much introduction because then I'll end up not finishing the message as well. So I'm just going to go straight into it. Please refer to it if you would like to, you know, by all means. But just to give you a, a very quick summary, it's this Jezebel. It's not actually her name. This woman was referred to as a Jezebel of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you found that Jezebel, there was, this, there, there was a queen Jezebel whose husband was Ahab, and she was foul. She was wicked, 
like anything, right? Uh, offered uh, food to the idols and killed the prophets and all of that, right? So here, they're looking at this person who is in the church. This lady, the prophetess, is in the church, and she is a type of a Jezebel that came in to teach an aspect of Christianity, a doctrine that was leading people away. So that's the underlying factor, right? Whilst they were doing so many of these things, there were this person, Jezebel, who was, who was coming and teaching. And so what was her teaching? And I, I, I term it as this, the Thyatirian Jezebelism. Say it with me, Thyatirian Jezebelism. Where she says this now, again, for those who lived in Thyatira, now the thing, those, those who lived in, in Thyatira, the only way that they could do business was to be part of a trade union, right? So they needed to join what they call a guild or a, or a trade union. And if they didn't join the trade union, then the issue would then be that they couldn't, uh, they, they couldn't survive. They would be out of a job. So everyone that needed to live in Thyatira needed to be part of this trade union or to be part of the guild. Hallelujah. And, and so what happened was that when, when Christians who felt that they couldn't participate in all of these vile activities like drunkenness or or, or different sexual activities and all of that, as, and, and, and worshipping these, these, uh, these idols. They felt that they couldn't attend it, and so they began to want to pull away from it. Now Jezebel comes and says, hey, you don't need to pull away, because there is your body, physical body, and your soul or spirit, they're two separate things. It is what they call this Hellenistic mindset or the Greek mindset, Greek philosophy of dualism, which is different from the Hebrew mindset. The Hebrew mindset doesn't separate your body and spirit as such. But this mindset, so it affected their salvation message. It affected the early church in how, they, in, in how people received the salvation message because of this dualistic mindset, right? And, and this dualism. Now, we have this prevalence in today's day and age. So what she's saying is this. The rituals of the guilds aren't really meaningful, even to the pagans. They are simply empty rituals. Although the pagan guilds or union members may believe that the gods exist, Christians know that the gods are nothing. Isn't that wisdom? Right? Thus, when believers participate in these cultic practices, they are really worshipping nothing. Lauren, it's frozen. Okay. In fact, participation in the guild meetings gives Christians the opportunity to be witnesses to, how wonderful is that? or positive influences on others. If believers do not participate in the guild events, they will, not, they will not only be persecuted and excluded, they will lose all relevance in the city and, and the economy. But most importantly, 
what God primarily cares about is the spirit or soul of the believer. If the soul of the believer is okay with the Lord, then one can choose to do whatever one likes with the temporal body. That's the teaching. That's the mindset. And that's what permeates the atmosphere that we live in today's in today's day and age. Right? So, so the, quest, the question here is this. How do believers live in the, sec, in the secularized economic world of Thyatira but not be of it? How do we live? Paul says, we are in this world but not of this world. Right? Remember, I shared it is only, it, it, is, it is not spiritual, it is only business. It is not spiritual, it is only business. That was the mindset that these people be- believed in, right? And, and we are, again, I want to I I pronounce this again and again. We are living in a world where that's being pushed down our throats. Pushed down our throats. So, so Jess, tell us, why did you actually go to Sydney? Um, hello, hello everyone. Um, for some context, I've been coming to this church for quite a while, since yeah. 2013. Did uni here, got a job in Melbourne, and about four <laughs> months into that job, they asked if I wanted to go up to Sydney, and I jumped at the opportunity. Probably could say I jumped the gun, and packed my bags, off I went. I thought it was for three months. Four years later, I was still in Sydney. <laughs> um, and it was really interesting when you asked me why, why did I go. It wasn't out of pure disobedience, Um, But it was more Mm, out of just like the next shiny thing, you know. And as people, I think we have a tendency to like the shiny things in life and we kind of get distracted quite easily. And so it was exactly that. It was like a little silver thing just over the the hill. And so so (laughs) I went to go look at it. And on reflection, I've reflected on it a lot over the past few months having come back. I think it's really interesting. So again, for context, I work in finance, a boring desk job. And I spend a lot of my time looking at companies. And it's interesting when a company has to make a decision, even a small insignificant decision, they draft up their papers and they take it to the board and then the board sits there, four to 12 people, and they deliberate the decision and they negotiate and they debate. And then at the end of the day, they come up with a really good decision. But I, for my life, how was it that I could make such a big decision? And, Mm. you know, I might consult my parents. You might consult your husband or wife. Maybe, just maybe you consult God. But at the end of the day, you just make a decision and you go. So how is it that, you know, as people, we make decisions so rash? And a company, which is so insignificant in the grand scheme of things, spends so much time deliberating decisions. And so that's been my key learning coming Mm. coming back Mm. is, you know, there's a reason why... You know, Solomon says there's wisdom in counsel, in wise counsel. And so why did I go to Sydney? Shiny thing. And it was a little bit not really a prayerfully considered decision. Mm. Mm -hmm. So whilst in Sydney, um, did you sort of privatize your faith? Oh, totally. Totally. And and how did that happen? Was that that something that progressively moved into that place or was it... Was it an immediate thing that happened for you? I think it, it sort of had its history, right? Because mm. we have church and we have our church life and our mm. Christian life and our Christian box. And then we have our public life and our business life and our relationships and our friendships in a separate box. And I understand as people, we need to be able to compartmentalize so that we can process things. Mm. But 
I would put it to you that compartmentalizing your life and your faith is a really dangerous dichotomy to be living in because then you have one foot in church and one foot in faith and your other foot in, in your life. And it becomes so easy then to separate your faith and your mm. life. And mm. what I found Very particularly good. in Sydney, and um, it was this ability to go, well, I've got my devotional time at the end of the day and I've got church from 10 to 11.30 and God forbid it goes beyond 11.30 because <laughs> that's my time. I had those two boxes and provided work and my life didn't impact those two boxes. It was fine. You could do whatever you wanted, you know, because that was the way that I could compartmentalise my life. And so, mm. yeah, it's a very real thing that I think people have to Keep. go through. And, and, you know, folks, I think this relates to... I would say all of us, mm. you know, we all face these decisions that we need to make. And, and every time we're, we're, we're chosen with that, you know, when, when you go like, you know, I, I shared an example some time ago, you know, a few weeks ago that you go out to the mall and uh, you, gotta, you, you receive your food and, and you're wondering now, okay, should I bow my head and close my eyes and pray or should I pray thank you jesus for this food bless bless this word hallelujah thank you jesus and you so that no one feels that all oh, you close your eyes and say or you, you even stand up and say thank you jesus hallelujah i want to i ask that you would bless this food are you willing to be over the top you know and and remember i shared this uh, this this uh, is, this not issue this circumstance in which i go to hampton park and i want to buy some meat Right, and I walk in there, and I want to buy some pork because I want to, I want to smoke some pork and uh, and or, or cook a curry or something along those lines. And I walk in there, and they are Cambodians of, of Vietnamese, and then they say, "No, sorry, we don't sell pork. Uh, all it's just all halal stuff." And so I I progress to I proceed to ask them, "Are you Muslim?" She says, "No." She says, "Because if we if we sell this, then we will lose all most of our customers." And so then I realized, wow, that culture has, and that religious belief has impacted that suburb or that business. But we as Christians, we say wisdom, hey, let's be wise, let's not do that. You know, we don't want to put people out. We want to bring them in. And, and you know, church, there is wisdom in everything we do. This is not a message about Casting away all wisdom. But this is a message to challenge you and I to think as to why we make those decisions. Do we have a dualistic mindset? Do we want to privatize our faith? If someone comes up to you, you know, whilst you're sitting down and saying, oh, oh, for Christ's sake, Jess, oh, Jesus. What do you do? Hey, how can you say Jesus? You should not say Jesus. You know, that's a wrong thing to say. Right? Or do you say, hey, do you know Jesus too? <laughs> because I sure do, do you? And then suddenly the person stops. And that's, that's what happened in a circumstance that I found myself in. When the waitress said that, I said, hey, oh, great, do you, do you know Jesus? And, and it, I know it, it was like sarcasm to some extent, right? But at least... You know, I mean, maybe I will not say that again another time. I don't know. But I was challenged in my own spirit. Now, do I say that all the time? Do I do that? Do I stand up all the time? No. I wish I can tell you right off the bat that 10 out of 10 times I do that. There are times where I, like a turtle, I just retreat. 
And I have to remind myself, man, why do I live in fear? Why am I living in a wisdom that embraces fear? That's how I want to put to you, a wisdom that embraces fear. Because it's not wisdom that brings freedom. God gives us freedom, right? Solomon says that, you, you spoke about Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he says, fear God. After everything else, he concludes with this, fear God and, uh, and obey all his commandments. Fear God and obey all his commandments. So that's, that's what Solomon, Solomon says there. So my last question to you would be this and to everyone. Is it possible for us to divide life in such a way that sacred and secular can be separated from each other so that faith can be a private matter and not, uh, and, and sorry, faith can be a private matter and business a public one? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really big question. Mm. And um, it's interesting um, all week, and forgive me, I've got a little bit to share on this, but all week I was pondering on this scripture, um, if I may read it out to you. Give me one second while I unlock my phone. also forgot my Bible at home, which is not good, but I have my phone. <laughs> that has your Bible on it. Which has my Bible on Praise it. Praise God. So in Psalm 43, verse 3, it says this. Bear with me just one moment. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. And all week I was pondering on this scripture and the word I was pondering on was tabernacle. What is that? What is, what is the tabernacle? And, uh, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time and I know that it was to do with the Israelites while they were in the desert. And, but I, I didn't quite understand the concept. And when I started looking into it, I loved the definition of tabernacle. It was a mobile worship centre. It's mm. where the Lord dwelt with his people, but it was a mobile worship center. Yeah. It was mobile and it was temporary. And the reason it was temporary is because the Israelites weren't going to be in the desert forever. Yeah. And I mean, you could sit on that for a week and just think about that exact thing. But the Lord really spoke that, that to me all week, you know, that, that it was where he was. He dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. It was where the dwelling place, right? And then on my way home last night, I was actually thinking secular sacred split I've done so much thinking on that in the past few months I was like God what like what can I share and then he dropped in my heart the difference between the tabernacle and the different and the temple and there's nothing the temple on its face is a good thing it was a place where we could come to worship God but the tabernacle was a God thing mm. so when you go back into Exodus it's God that delivers to I think it was to Moses or to Abraham this concept of the tabernacle but then when David wanted to build the temple, it was actually him with all the goodness in his heart wanting to build a place for God to reside. And do you mind if I read out one more scripture sure. just on that? Sure. So I did some research into the idea of a temple. And um, in 1 Corinthians, no, 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles 17, right at the beginning, it says this. So 1 Chronicles 17 verse 1. Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in this house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. So it came from a good place. Wanting to build a temple came from a good place. But then in verse 3 it said, But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, 
You shall not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I bought up Israel, even to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent, from one tabernacle to another. Wherever I have moved about with all of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And I thought that was really interesting because God didn't tell David necessarily to build a temple even though it was a good thing because he dwelt in the tabernacle because he was in covenant relationship. He was dwelling with his people. And it was interesting as I was thinking about this more last night, I realized that the temple is a place where we go, we worship God at the temple and then we leave the temple, right? And so God is here and we are here. Whereas when we're in a tabernacle relationship with God, he dwells with his people. We can't escape the tabernacle when we are in that relationship, right? Very good. And we know that when Jesus came, he tabernacled with With us. us. He dwelt with us. Mm. And we know that the Holy Spirit now lives within us. Mm. So Mm. I would put it to you, should we not be in a constant tabernacle relationship with God? Amen. Wonderful. And if we're in that place, yeah. That's great. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, thank you. I'm going to pick it up from there. Thanks, thanks so much. Let's give a hand to Jess. Thank you. We're so glad that she she is back, praise God. And uh, she took a step of faith by resigning and, uh, no, not, yeah, I think resigning. And then there was an offer for her that came in a 20-minute interview, I think, at the airport, and she was given the job. So praise God, she's she's here. And I'm I'm just going to, I'm going to end with two examples, Lot and Zacchaeus. So to bring some context into, into what we've been speaking and, and, and sharing. So wh- one of the things that, um, that we, we've been looking at and we've been talking about is this, how do we live in this world and not be of it? Amen. So I want this to be in the forefront of our minds. How do we live in this world but not be of it? And the, the, uh, the, the answer or somewhat... Um, uh, feedback or information that I gave was this, that when we, if we derive our identity from the world, then we live in this world, right? It is important when Paul says we live in this world, but not of this world. So we don't derive our identity from the world. It's from the kingdom of God. It's from God. Hallelujah. As we tabernacle with him, right? Now, the, the issue, as William Barclay says in the church in Thyatira, was this. It was more the problem that faced, that, that the Christians faced with this, that uh, a Christian in Thyatira was, was whether they were to make money or to be, a, to be a Christian. So in other words, if they were to be a Christian, they would lose their job. Meaning, they had to be part of the union. There was no way of not being part of the union. Hallelujah. So, so this was the issue. So is life spiritual or, again, is it business then? That was the issue. And so the, this is what I call the, the undercover believer's mantra. This is the mantra that seeps and that sits in, 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 in many of our lives. Is it possible for us then to divide life in such a way that the sacred and secular can be separated from each other so that faith can be a private matter and business a public one? So we say, hey, I'm going to work. That's my day job. When I come to church, then it's church. I, I don't want to mix the both. So let's live a dichotomized life, right? 
That's how we do that, and that's, that, that continues on with life. So how then should we now begin to think of this one mindset that God intends for us, right? So the Bible, firstly, it doesn't hold this distinction between the spirit and the body or, or, or spiritual and sacred as what I term Hellenistic Jezebel was teaching. Right? And she was proclaiming. So that was the Greek religious culture at that point in time. This dualistic worldview. And it is really held strongly by, by Gnostics. So because the Hebrew worldview is not, is not dualistic, death is neither, and here this death is neither a relief nor a blessing. It is instead really an enemy of the, to the way God wants things to be. You see... Although creatures die, the uniqueness of humanity is such that death is not necessarily the end of the story. Amen? Death is not the end of the story. The hopes of the Hebrew people were this, that, that there was this eternal post-resurrection embodied living. In other words, as to how Jesus came at the transfiguration he showed. This is it, this is it and that was their, that was their hope. And, and so there was this, there was this real sense, sense of hope. Now, Jesus also came in the fleshly form of humanity and shockingly did not proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven as solely, here this a future event. Right? Instead, he proclaimed that the kingdom of God had indeed arrived through him. So when we step out, and when we lay hands on the sick, when we take our Christianity out there, we are actually confirming the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going out through you and I. So when you don't, and when you and I privatize our faith, we have capped the kingdom of God from being able to be expressed out there. And so if the kingdom of God is not expressed out there, what is going to be expressed? The kingdom of darkness will be expressed. Right? Jesus says... You don't put a what a bush no. You don't put a light, uh, you don't put a lamp and cover it with a bushel, is it? Or you don't some yeah I think you don't you don't hide a thank you you don't hide a lamp under a bushel. Oops, sorry. You don't hide a lamp under the bushel. The light is to shine. The light is absolutely to shine. So. Continuing on, he says, they, they viewed heaven. Now, it is unlikely that believers in the church thought of heaven as in the sky. They viewed heaven as being invisibly present or even adjacent to the, natu- to the material and visible world. So in Revelations 4, for instance, when John gets a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, although he steps up into God's presence, he probably does not envision God reigning from somewhere high above in the heavens, but more likely, you know, like the way C.S. Lewis in his mythical kingdom of Narnia is accessible through that wardrobe. The kingdom of God exists all around exists all around us, 
and is revealed as present and visible in the signs and ministry of Jesus. So as we worship just now, why do we worship? Firstly, we ask us, why do we worship? Why do we sing all of these songs? Waymaker, miracle worker. Why do we repeat it 10,000 times? Because each time you go deeper, each time you go further, each time it hits something deeper within you. Because your emotions are connecting with the word of God. John chapter 4 verse 28, the message version says, My spirit must pursue the truth. My spirit must be pursuing truth. So if my spirit is not pursuing truth, I will always be this person that only has a cognitive, cognitive relationship with God. I'm all about knowledge. The Greek mindset was all about that. But God, the Hebrew mindset is all about that sense of experience. So the mindset of privatized faith is prevalent in church. You know, politi a political candidate made the statement, I'm a person of deep faith, but I don't allow those faith convictions to influence my political agenda. That is a statement that clearly illustrates the separation between secular and sacred that runs through the heart of many believers and many churches. Now, we might say that is wisdom because let's be stealth believers. So, what was this gross thing that Jezebel was doing? She was encouraging covenant infidelity. If you look through the Old Testament, Hosea and Gomer, and you see the context of adultery that was there, that God was trying to teach these people, hey, this is spiritual adultery that is happening. I need to remove my wife's false teeth right now, I think, huh? <laughs> Praise God, hallelujah. Oh, I think I'm going to be sleeping on the couch this afternoon. Hallelujah. <laughs> Jesus, praise God. Bless God. But thankfully, I've got a comfortable couch. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. <laughs> you want to come and sit here, please? <laughs> okay. So here are two, contrast, here are two contrasting stories that, that, I, just, that I just want, want to add. And, and, and maybe before that, let me, let, let me just quickly... Share this aspect, right? Now, the resurrection of Jesus, it freed the early church from the fear of death. This is powerful, right? Death had forever lost its sting. And this had several consequences here in how they lived their lives, right? First, the, the, the principalities and powers no longer had authority over the early Christians. The threat Caesar carried in his hand was the threat of death but because the early believers no longer feared death, they could, they could become martyrs. Because they believed in this one mindset, this Hebrew thought, right? Witnesses to and for the kingdom of God. Secondly, they also became well known for their care of the sick. Because in ancient cultures, the sick, especially those with deadly and communicable diseases, were removed from society. The church, however, is commanded to gather around and lay hands on the sick. Their lack of fear regarding death 
gave them the ability to embrace and care for the sick in ways that also witness to God's kingdom. So of particular importance for our understanding of this letter is that the resurrection gave the early church a hope in what we might call this life after death. Right? So, two things, key aspects in the church of Thyatira, they practice a whole lot of tolerance and there was a whole bunch of normalization that happened in that church. Right? Now, it was the threat of persecution. William Barclay says this, it did not come from the dangers of heathen worship, or rather it was not the threat of persecution. This is within the context of the church. It came from inside the church. It came from those who within the church who, who proposed to face the world with the most dangerous of all doctrines, a doctrine of compromise. So this attack in the church was not just merely from outside, it was from inside of the church. How do we compromise, right? And so here are two take-home questions for you. I'd, I'd really love for you to go and ponder on these questions. What are some ways Christians struggle to live out a faith that encompasses all of life, not some, all of life. The second is, in what ways does the contemporary church or contemporary culture and the contemporary church treat faith as private? How do you treat this as private? Friends, for us to get deeper in God, for us to understand the whole context of intimacy with Christ, we need to answer these questions. You need to answer these questions. You need to answer the question, why have you not fully embraced the Lord? Because in God, there's no 95% commitment, there's 100%. Because He didn't come here and die for you and I and say, only some of your sins are going to be forgiven. All of these other sins, I don't think it will. He came and He said, no. It's for everything, anything that you can think of. There is no shame against you. I love you beyond a shadow of any doubt. And if I had to die for you again and again, I will. But thankfully, that doesn't need to happen because His death was a once and for all sacrifice. He doesn't come down from the cross and die and then go back up and down and up and down. No. Once and for all, it's been done. He became that perfect sacrifice for you and I. Right? So, Lot and Abraham were given a choice, right? Abraham gave Lot this choice. Because their flocks were, were, were growing and, and, and they were really prospering. So, Abraham takes him and he goes up to this mountain, to this hilltop, and he looks at this valley and he says, I want that space. And so, Lot began to build his camp close to what we now know as Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot began to pitch his tent and he went close. To and the word of the Lord says that Lot was at the gate of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was at the gate. So you're there only for 
probably two reasons. One is you became an official to do business. I mean, you became an official in that place because you would then be the ones who would pass out judgments. So probably he was in the council. He was a counselor. Could be that's, that's one um, popular thought. The other is that he was actually doing business in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he goes in there and he begins to do that. And when Lot begins to tell, you know, his, his, his in-laws, his son-in-laws that, hey, you need to leave this place. You need to leave this place because something is going to be happening right now. There's judgment that is coming. They thought he was just jesting. You see, that's what happens to us when God begins to come, when, when someone begins to tell us something, we take it as, ah, that ain't going to happen. They're just joking. They're not really all that serious. God can't be demanding that. He can't be doing that. He wouldn't do that. And the other aspect is, you know what happened to Lot's wife? She turned around and some commentators say this, that it's because her identity was so linked to Sodom that she was told not to look back. But she looked back and so when your identity is so linked to that, what happens to you and I? We become that. Right? Now, in the context of Zacchaeus, he serves as a kind of an anti-lot in Scripture. Lot represents the righteous person who gets caught up in, in the secular. Zacchaeus represents the worldly person who is captured by the sacred. So when in Luke 19, Zacchaeus encounters Jesus over dinner, there is no record of Jesus doing anything more than just eating dinner at Zacchaeus' house. And yet when faced with the convicting presence of Christ, Zacchaeus vows to give back half of his possession, to assist the poor, to compensate fully those whom he has defrauded. So in conclusion, church, the problem with the spirit of privatized faith is that it robs the church, it robs you and I of the ability to become a contrast model to the world in every area of life. In every area. Do you believe you can go and lay hands on the sick and pray? Oh no, maybe it's for someone else. No, it's for you. It's for you. You can. Go in faith. That's a great command, uh, commission. Privatized faith gives cognitive assent to a different kingdom, but fails to witness to that kingdom's presence. Right? So the fateful destruction for Lot occurred when Sodom became the real world and God's covenantal life became the idealistic concept. The church that is doing battle with the spirit of privatized faith is learning to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, as it is also learning to embody together the reality that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and our Messiah, of our Lord and our King. Friends, today, whatever it is that God 
you know, is, is speaking to you about, you know, we dedicated children today. This is a very, very powerful thing. You know, we don't baptize. We don't do infant baptism. We dedicate. We follow what scripture says. As Jesus was dedicated, we, we dedicate our children. And the charge was given to all the parents. But will you train your child in the way of the Lord? That is a very, very difficult aspect. I've got four kids. You know, there is no sure thing. You, you share the word, you teach, you do everything. There is no certainty except the fact that the word of the Lord says that they will not depart. Amen. I didn't grow up a believer. I wish I did, but I didn't. But I thank God that I was snuffed out of the kingdom of darkness. As it says in Psalm 40, I was taken out of the miry clay and established on a solid rock. And yea, no, a new song has been placed in my mouth that others will fear and trust the Lord. Hallelujah. So we really trust the Lord. And, and I want you to take a moment and I want you to think very seriously right now. I want you to consider this. Can we put those questions up again, please? I want you to consider this, that in what way, sorry, what are some ways that I, ask yourself, what are some ways that I struggle to live out my faith that encompasses all of life? Just ask yourself this question. What are some ways that I struggle to live out my faith that encompasses all of my life? 